Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. I suspect that most of us spend very little time thinking about the emotional lives of judges. Even when we see them on TV, they're these, these kind of remote figures sitting up on this elevated platform wearing robes. You know, maybe we're aware when Judge Judy's in a bad mood, but um, they, of course, do have emotional lives, and they're making incredibly important decisions. And I heard recently that there's a, a little bit of a movement uh, in the judiciary to adopt mindfulness. And one of the guys who's kind of at the forefront of that is Jeremy Fogel, who's a, a senior United States district judge in the Northern District of California, who's currently serving as the director of the Federal Judicial Center in Washington, D.C., which is a an education uh, wing of the judiciary. They basically do education for judges. And he's a meditator, and he's trying to get other judges to do it. And uh, so I give you Jeremy Fogel. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. I always ask everybody the same first question, which is, how and why did you start meditating? Well, it was about 20 years ago. I, I think it was just my wife and I were both interested in kind of developing more ways of, of centering ourselves and, and making our lives more reflective. And, and so we actually um, got involved in, in mindfulness meditation and in, and in yoga right about the same time. Mm. We took, took some classes. And, so it didn't have anything to do with being a judge? No. Well, I mean, being a judge had a lot to do with it in the sense that I felt that my job put me under a lot of stress. Uh. Uh, and that it required a lot of complex decision-making. Uh, and I was looking for a way of, of getting some space and centering myself. And I had studied, actually, I had studied uh, meditation in a different context. I, I was a religion, religious studies major in, in college. I was really interested in those subjects. I studied Eastern religion, so I was aware of, of Zen. I was aware of meditation in, in that context, but I'd never done it. I mean, it wasn't practice that I had but but the idea of having um, having a practice that kind of gave me a, a way of getting space was something I sort of intuitively it intuitively made sense to me so it was something that when we kind of decided together to do this we it was it was with with some enthusiasm and and yoga really has which I've also done pretty much since then um, has had the same effect and I've kind of chosen I, I like yin yoga I like the the uh, restorative, reflective, in you know, not so much the athletic stuff, and, and more the, more the, the the opportunity to really use it for deep relaxation. So, so I took a mindfulness meditation class. It was the you know the John Kabat Zinn eight week program. Thought it was great, and continued doing it. It was just a it was something that made sense. It was it, it came pretty naturally, and uh, just ne- never have stopped. I mean, I think in terms of my consistency, that's really varied depending on what else has been going on in my life, but. I've always found some time to meditate. Every day? No, not every day. That's why I say the consistency yeah. has been has varied. I mean, there have been times where I've meditated every day. There have been times when I've meditated two or three times a week. Um, I think I'm more in that, that latter category now. But, but one of the things that's, that's happened is that it's less formal and more like I'll find moments in my life. Like I'll be at work and, and I'll notice I'm a little bit off-center and I'll close the door to my office and I'll take five minutes, you know, that I'm doing more of that rather than having a uh, kind of a structured practice of sitting for a certain number of minutes a day. What do you say I'm feeling off center? What do you mean by that? Well, I think one of the, one of the benefits of having meditated is that I have a sense of equanimity. I have a sense of where I want to be. I'm present. I'm in the, in the moment to a fairly good degree, and there are times when things happen. Either I'm very tired or there's something that's happened in my life that's upsetting or distracting, uh, and I just notice I'm not feeling that way. I'm not, I'm not feeling the equanimity. Um, I'm feeling more emotional than I normally do, or I'm feeling more anxious than I usually do, or uh, some, something doesn't feel lined up with where I usually am. I mean, I think that's been one of the effects of Having done this for a long time, is I have a, I have a place that I am most of the time that feels quite stable, and and where where I'm I'm happy being. And how, how back in 1996, how long did it take for you to start feeling more centered? To use your word? oh, quite a while, quite a while. I mean, when I, when I talk to people about 
meditation now. I so, see, you know, it's it's it, it's very very slow growth. You know, it's not like you start doing it and a week later your your life is completely different. You know, that it's 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 a it's a very gradual process. Um, and there's a story that that I tell when I talk about meditation to people is um, I've been I think I had done a couple couple of the of the eight week classes and and I was waiting at a a red light near my my home and it was a long light you know it was a small street feeding into a big street and and I was looking at the light and I was looking at the light and I said to my wife I said you know that light is really red <laughs> you know that that there was like some way that that I noticed you know that I was just more aware of the of the situation I was in and I think that's when I started to notice that it was having a having an impact but you know to really get to this and I really describe it as uh, a sense of equanimity that's that's taken years and i think it's it's just the the process of constantly coming back to a place where i can feel things very intensely it's not like i don't feel things but but that they don't stick that i can just notice that they're there and and, and let them go what was your you said your job at the time was pretty stressful I know you've kind of switched jobs a little bit, which we'll get into in a second. But yeah. your t- job at the time was you were uh, on the district court in the Northern District. Actually, of- it was right before that. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. I was I was still on the state court. Gotcha. Uh, it's called the Superior Court in California, and I was. Um, it's that's the the general jurisdiction court for the for the for the state. Uh, I was doing um, complex civil cases, and I was also doing some fairly heavy criminal cases. And the, the state courts do most of the the major felonies. And so I had a, a, a number of cases in that job that, that really were quite demanding. Um, they were emotionally demanding, physically demanding. Uh, and then right about that time, actually, right right around the time I started doing meditation, um, I um, was nominated for the district court. And um, that, you know, people followed judicial nominations they know that it's it's a stressful process a lot of politics and and uh and there was then there is now and and so the process of being vetted for that position and being having my background check and and going coming out to dc to go to the senate hearings and you know all of that that was uh was actually quite stressful uh in addition to my day job um i had to had to deal with that and it was um it was great actually having something that i could 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 use as a refuge from that. So 1996 is is well before this became a corporate phenomenon, a, a cultural phenomenon, an athletic phenomenon. Right. You were you were you were ahead of the curve here. So did you tell anybody you worked with that you were doing this thing? I met another judge right around that time who and I don't even remember how it was that we discovered we were both meditators and actually she'd been doing it longer than I had. But I've always done a lot of judicial education. I mean, it's how I got to my president's job, which we'll talk about. But uh, I was teaching uh, state judges in California, and they were primarily dealing with judges who were doing family and juvenile cases, which anybody who's been a judge will tell you are, are probably the hardest cases to do. I mean, you'd think it would be a murder case or something like that, but make sure the ones that, the ones that really demand the most of you uh, in terms of emotional intensity and just trying to keep your keep your head if you ever get a contested child custody case or you get a get a juvenile dependency case and I was teaching um, a class that was basically about coping strategies you know how to do cases like that and maintain your maintain your equilibrium not impose your personal biases on them I mean really try to to handle them in a thoughtful way and um, so people talked about how hard the cases were how demanding they were and we were saying, well, what can you do to deal with that? And you know, there are various ways to reduce stress. And one of the one of the judges who was in the class volunteered that that she meditated. And um, I think it was part of her religious tradition. She was Buddhist, and she was part of her her religious practice. But you know, then we talked afterwards, and you know, I said, well, I do that too. You know, and it was, but it wasn't something that one kind of went out and broadcast. You know, it was it was definitely sort of viewed as an alternative kind of practice, alternative way of living. And so how now, obviously, you're pretty open about it. Yeah. But, uh, so w- what changed? Well, I think the, the world changed. Uh, I think people really, you know, one of the things that I, I like about 
mindfulness meditation is that that its origins are completely secular. That it it, it uh, was something that was discovered in kind of helping people deal with chronic pain, and not discovered, but the application was for people with chronic pain. And uh, another sort of personal path for me is I used to have. Uh, every spring, I would get really bad hay fever. I had I had uh, was allergic to various kinds of pollen in in, in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area where I lived, and and you know April and May were just torture for me. And I actually was able to desensitize myself through meditation. I don't I don't get those allergies anymore. So it's you know it sounds like one of these miraculous things, but it really wasn't. It was just noticing that there was a. Uh, an emotional component to my allergic reaction and it's something to do with that and something to do with my you know how run down my immune system was and so I was able to notice that and then I was able to do things to take care of myself and over over time it it went away so um, I think a lot of people have had experiences like that I think a lot of people have either been able to deal with chronic pain they've been able to deal with chronic stress or various kinds of, of illnesses and then there's all of the performance enhancement stuff that's happened, you know, you mentioned in the corporate world and, and in the military, that uh, people learn that uh, actually centering yourself and, and calming your mind can make you work more effectively and, and be able to think more clearly and, and deal with stressful tasks more, more um, accurately. Uh, I, one of the one of the military folks I've been working with lately um, is a, a fighter pilot, you know, and and she um, has she trains people to fly supersonic air, aircraft, you know, and and it's it's just really interesting to hear her talk about mindfulness because it's like it, you know nothing could be sort of a more immediate thing than than having to you know navigate at, at that kind of speed and just having really having some additional bandwidth, which is one of the things you get from from meditation, I think. You know, and, and I think that's what um what's been discovered in the corporate world, you know, and that's why and in athletics, that's the other I didn't mention that, but I mean that's the other place where I mean there's been several uh, professional sports teams, successful ones that that are uh, where that's part of their training. So it's it's been been interesting to to see that happen. And then there are the New York Knicks, not well, so yeah, successful, not but so they successful. do meditate. No, I was thinking of the Golden State Warriors. Yes, well, right, yeah, right, right, right. Uh, uh, also, the yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the uh, Bulls and the Lakers, who, right. um, who came before the Knicks mm-hmm. in terms of uh, Phil Jackson's career. Right. But, but um, I, first of all, I love the term extra bandwidth. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. So you went from being a, a, a state court to a federal court. Uh, district judge yeah. to now moving you now have moved from Northern California to Washington D.C. and right. this actually has a pertinence to meditation we'll, that we'll get to, but just so that we can mm-hmm. follow the, the chronology here. And so your current job is what? Well, so there's a, an agency called the Federal Judicial Center, which is actually a, a statutory uh, agency. It was set up by Congress 50 years ago, uh, and it has two primary purposes. One is to do policy research for the federal judiciary so that we can advise the policymakers like the Chief Justice and the, and the Judicial Conference of the United States on best practices and how to manage the courts, not, not what kind of decisions they should make, but, but how the courts ought to be set up and managed and, and how the workload ought to be, be managed. And then uh, the other major mission is educating all of the people who work in the judicial branch. So it's all of the judges uh, at every level, uh, plus all of the administrative staff, the clerks of court and the probation and pretrial officers and and everybody else who works for the courts. So we, we actually have a fairly large constituency. And I think one way of thinking about the FJC, that's what is our, we're known as, Federal Judicial Center, is it's a kind of like a, a university within the judiciary, which has the traditional functions of a university. We do a lot of, of research and we do a lot of teaching. And, and so, so I was selected to be the director of that uh, five years ago, and that's what caused me to move to, to D.C. And in that role, you actually did uh, did an interesting thing, which was you published – well, I'll let you tell. Well, so, um, you know, I've been – the last five years that I've been there, I've been, kind of been slowly trying to think through uh, a modern curriculum for judges. Um, and, you know, I think when I talk to members of the public, they usually think, well, you know, you're learning about the law – and and actually, that's 
a relatively small part of what I mean when I talk about a curriculum for judges because under our system, most of the people who become federal judges are very accomplished lawyers before they become judges, and that's kind of how they get to be judges. So they know the, they know the law pretty well when they get there, and what they, what they need in that respect is, is updates and, and you know, if there are new developments, they need an opportunity to, to get that. And if there's an area they didn't get in their practice, then we need to offer that component. But primarily what people need is they need um, education about how to do the job that you are, you're in a very different uh, position when you're a judge than you were as a lawyer. You're, you're not an advocate. You, you have to be a neutral. Uh, you deal with a very wide variety of, of cases. You might be an expert on environmental law and know nothing about criminal law, or you might um, know um, something about one particular culture, your own usually, and, and not anything about somebody else's. Um, there are ways to communicate. You know, how do you write a good opinion? How do you make a good oral ruling so that people not only feel that you've been fair, but they, that you feel heard and understood? So there's a lot of skills that go with the job that people don't necessarily know when they come to the job. And then there are some parts of the job that are, that are quite challenging emotionally. Sentencing is the one that people always mention, that when you're, you're sentencing people in a criminal case, it it sometimes can be very heart-wrenching, you know, when you're sending someone to prison for a long time and, you know, you see their, their family in the courtroom and you realize you're not just punishing somebody for committing a crime, but you're also separating them from their family and the, their spouses or their kids don't necessarily have any culpability and, and, and yet they're suffering too. And you have victims of crime who've uh, suffered terribly and you have to deal with their situation. So, so you know, there's a lot of emotional stress around sentencing. Um, and so a lot of what our job is is to figure out how to help judges deal with those things. And at some point after working on this curriculum for a long time, uh, I, and I've been thinking about this over the years that I've been there, that mindfulness actually has something to contribute um, in, this, in this area. And so I wrote a, um, a very short article about some of the ways that mindfulness can be applied to the work that judges do. Um, and, you know, up till now, the, the, you, know, you might see this at a, at a judge's workshop. You know, it's, it's a health and wellness thing. It's a way of um, reducing stress just like running or, or, you know, other kinds of exercise. So there's been some, some mention of it there, but there hasn't been a lot of attention paid to how uh, mindfulness practice could actually help you with the job itself. And that's what I wanted to talk about. And you were, you were a little nervous about doing it. I was it. definitely nervous about doing it because even though, as you suggested in an earlier question, I mean, mindfulness has become more mainstream, uh, it's not so mainstream in the judiciary. And I've always been a little self-conscious of the fact that I'm from Northern California. You know, I was worried <laughs> that people would stereotype me as being from the land of, uh, land of the counterculture. You know, and, and I really did not want it to be um, taught that way. I didn't want it to be perceived that way. It seemed to me that it's a tool, along with all the other tools we try to equip people with, but but it's a tool that has uh, some very specific applications to judicial work. And so what I talked about in the article were, were three things. Uh, one was that it helps you deal with repetitive tasks in a, in a more thoughtful way. And again, for people who aren't familiar with the courts, you know, one thing that I mean, all judges do certain things over and over again. You know, if you're, if you're presiding over a, a criminal calendar, you'll take a certain number of guilty pleas every, every week. Um, if you are a bankruptcy judge, you will have um, so many dozens of, of hearings with, with debtors to confirm their, their, their plans every week. Um, if you're a magistrate judge, you'll have bail hearings, uh, many of them in the course of a week. And those functions actually are very, very repetitive. That, that if you've been a judge for a long time, you know, the, 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 they, they start to take on a sameness to them. For the people who are in court, however, it may be the only case they have. It may be the only contact they're ever going to have with the court. Hopefully, if it's a criminal case, it is the only contact they're ever going to have. And, and so it's a really big deal to them. But what happens to us with the, with the rep repetition is it feels very routine. And I think one of the ways mindfulness can really be helpful is sort of the notion that um, you approach every moment anew. You know, you approach it with a beginner's mind. And, and that 
construct, I think, has been has been very helpful to me, and I think it's very helpful to others too. It's the the idea that, you know, I, I maybe I've taken in my I haven't counted how many guilty pleas I've taken, but I've been a judge for 35 years. I've probably taken thousands of guilty pleas. But sort of the notion that this was this is the first one I've ever taken. You know, kind of thinking about it that way or approaching it that way, um, and that that not only helps me see more and take in more. You know, kind of go back to my red light example. You know, I'm I'm seeing more of a, more texture and more more in the whole situation. But it, what, it, what it's communicating to the defendant or to the other people in the courtroom is that I'm really there and I'm really present and I'm not just sort of processing something. So so I think that's one of the ways that practicing mindfulness can help judges do their jobs better. And then another thing, and it's a big deal these days because our country is becoming so much more diverse, is is cultural awareness um, that it's real easy to, especially if you're under stress and you're, you're really busy, to just assume that when somebody does something it has a particular meaning. And so the example I give in the article is um, making eye contact. And, I, you know, as most of us in, in the U.S., we, we kind of think eye contact is a, is a sign that somebody's being truthful with us. I mean, there's sort of a it's the way we're, we're wired to see it that way. Well, I've learned from some of my international work that there are parts of the world where people just don't look at you. You know, looking, looking at you is, a, is actually an act of hostility. You, know, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. Uh, unless you knew somebody very well. and, and uh, So, you know, you can't fill in the gaps of culture if somebody doesn't know that there's a cultural difference. But what I think being more mindful allows you to do is to not, not make assumptions about things, you know, that you, you see somebody relating to you in a particular way, and you don't just assume that what they're doing has a particular meaning, that you, you have a more non-judgmental um, approach to the to the interaction. What about unconscious racial bias? I mean, aren't well, there discrimina- uh, discrepancies here in the way sentences are meted out? Well, absolutely. I mean, that's you know, unconscious racial bias is a is a huge topic in judicial education. It's a huge topic in in the judiciary. And you know, I, I, as I've said many times, I don't know that I've ever met a judge who didn't want to be fair. I mean, it's kind of like the it's it's a basic job description, mm-hmm. you know, but. It, there, are, there are ways we can be unfair unconsciously, and it's a hard one to get at because, you know, what do you mean I'm being unfair unconsciously? If I'm trying to be fair and I'm, you know, I'm doing my best to be fair, what do you, what do you mean I'm not being fair? <laughs> you know, and so you, there's, a, there's a, I think, a natural defensiveness people feel sometimes. And I think one of the things that um, slowing down your mind and being more mindful allows you to do is to allow for the possibility that you are looking at the situation through your own lens, which I think, in fact, we are. But it, it allows you to do that with, with, with less resistance. I guess you just it, just, it comes with the territory. As you become more mindful, you realize that what I'm seeing, what I think I'm seeing is, is, is what I'm seeing. It's not necessarily what the other person is doing or experiencing. So you, 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 gain, you gain more space. I mean, I need to say here that it doesn't make up for lack of information you know in other words that if if somebody's from a very different culture from you and you don't know anything about that culture uh you could be the world's most mindful person and you still wouldn't know what you don't know about that culture Mm -hmm. so i think there is an educational element when you're talking about bias that, that mindfulness doesn't get at but i think it it slows you down enough that you can allow for the possibility um one one of the things that i really find helpful. There's a, there's a book by Daniel Kahneman called uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, and he talks about System 1 thinking and System 2 thinking, and you, you, System 1 is your sort of intuitive, reactive way of thinking. It's just you, it's your habits of mind, and, and System 2 thinking is reflective thinking, where you actually think about the data you're taking in and you, you, you reflect about it. And what happens, particularly when you're in high-stress jobs, is it's, you, you almost naturally track into system one. And it's, we all do it, and, and to some extent, we need to do it. I mean, you don't have time to think about you know, whether uh, you know, you're going to get run over by a car crossing the street. I mean, you, you see somebody coming at a high rate of speed, and you react to that. Uh, so 
our reactions serve a, a useful function, but sometimes they're wrong. And you know, when you when you when you're in a job like uh, like I'm in, and, and my colleagues are in, where you're you're making decisions that really have impact on people's lives, um, slowing down your mind actually, I, I really believe helps you do your job better. And I think it's it's true in the area of bias, along with 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 many other things. You you just don't. Um, you don't react so quickly. You, you give yourself a little more time to be reflective. And then I think if you add to that the, the um, opportunity to get cross-cultural education, which we're really trying to do as well, uh, just to get people to tell stories, you know, to learn more about each other's life story, um, then you can combine those things, and I think you really can get at uh, racial bias and other kinds of bias, gender bias. Um, you know, it's... it's uh, it's hard work, but I think it's, it's, it's. I think mindfulness enhances it. Huge issue. Huge yeah, issue. Yeah. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger: "Never worry alone." Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. So how did the how did that article go over and and is is mindfulness taking off in the judiciary? Yeah, I'll, I'll, before I answer that question, I just want to say there's one other oh, right, there's one right. other there's point third, I wanted to yes, make. There's yes, a third yes. point which is important, and I I, I I I think it's important I make it before I answer your question because go, go I think because yeah. I think this is the one that people really relate to, which is the the uh, emotional uh, there's a there's a psychological term for it emotional regulation. So you know somebody does something that upsets you. And so you talk with judges around the world, not just around the country. You talk with judges around the world. Bad lawyers upset us. Um, unreasonable parties upset us. Um, dumb cases upset us. You know, there, are, there, are, there are certain pet peeves that, that, that I think judges all have. And, and it's not uncommon that, that if, it, if it gets really bad, you, you – respond to that. You show your emotion. You, you react. You, you, you are cross with somebody or you yell at them or you are discourteous to them or you, you, know, you, you somehow communicate your displeasure in some way. And sometimes that's really not appropriate. I mean, it's not, you, you lose that sense of, of judicial demeanor that everybody kind of hopes for when they come to court. So one of the arguments that I make in the article, and it certainly has been true for me, is that having, uh, having more uh, bandwidth, as I said earlier, having more space allows me to have more equanimity, so I can notice. It's not that I don't, it's not that I don't get irritated. I do, uh, but I notice that I'm irritated before I express the irritation. You know, I, I notice it, and I have a little more time to say, "Oh, you know, this lawyer is really starting to make me mad." Mm. You know, and so, so, and then I can say, "Well, what am I going to do about it?" You know, am I going to ignore it? Am I going to take a recess? Am I going to say something to the lawyer? But if I say something to a lawyer, I want it to be uh, considered and dignified and modulated and so on. So you, you, you have more room to do that, I think, as a result of 
a mindfulness practice. Right. Respond, not react. We talk about it all the time. That's on right. Show. That's right. So, and I might mention, you know, my wife has, a, has been a preschool teacher for many years, and so she worked with, with two-year-olds. And, you know, Is that harder a, or easier than dealing with lawyers? Well, I think it's there's similarities. <laughs> I mean, and I don't mean to disrespect either lawyers or two-year-olds, you know, but I mean, it's like, it's like there are, there are real challenges in working with young children. And I think she would say that, you know, she gained a lot more equanimity as well um, and just had a lot more patience and, you know, was able to, to, to just take it as it came. And, um, you know, I, I know yeah, I asked a question yeah, earlier yeah, that we, that we yeah. didn't have to set aside because you wanted to yeah. list this third thing, but so now I'm going to yeah. even take us further down yeah. the tributary. It just, it strikes me sitting with you that I don't know that members of the public empathize with or think much about judges. Mm. Yes, Judge Judy's a huge figure in right. our culture or whatever, sure, but I don't sure. know... Like when I'm watching a courtroom drama, the person I'm least drawn to on the, sure. in the frame is the judge. Right. Um, I'm thinking about the lawyer. It's all about the lawyers and the defendants. Oh, that's right. And and you know, in fact, our our chief justice once said, you know, the the, the judge is sort of the umpire. No, no one goes to the game to see the to see the umpire. Right. Um, I think I think in 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 a trial, you know, uh, that the, the the umpire analogy is actually very good. I mean, it's a little different for appellate judges because they are they are making legal policy kinds of decisions. Um, but as a trial judge, which I've been my whole career, you, you, you really don't want to be the story. Um, but at the same time, you, you are, a, in, in a way, you're kind of a, a symbol of the legitimacy of the entire system. Um, this is another thing I've written about. It's a different article. But, uh, you know, we don't have, you know, we don't have a state religion. We don't have... Um, and we, we have a very polarized country politically, I mean, particularly now, but, I mean, we, we have at other times in, the, in our history as well. But, but one thing that, that people um, generally accept is, is the idea of the rule of law. We accept the legitimacy of the courts. Um, you know, when the, the 2000 presidential election, when the Supreme Court decided who was going to be president, you know, it, 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 in some countries there would have been a revolution, you know, mm-hmm. but, but it didn't happen here. You know, the people... A lot of people didn't like the decision, but 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 people accepted the decision, and and I think you know we're very fortunate. And I say this as somebody who's done a lot of international travel. We're very fortunate that our courts are as respected as they are. One one of the reasons that the courts are respected is I think we have a very professional judiciary. I think people really take it seriously. Most of the judges I've had the privilege of working with take the job very seriously. And so we're, we're we're the we're symbols of the of the uh, institution, and I think in order to really do that job as well as we can, you know, we need a number of things. I mean, it doesn't doesn't hurt to be smart. It doesn't hurt to be uh, efficient. Uh, it doesn't hurt to be brave. It doesn't hurt to be compassionate. But but I think having the ability to be self aware is is a very important part of it too. And I think it's more important now than it's ever been because of the things I was talking about, because of the diversity of society and because, you know, this – in some ways I think the courts are the, are the glue that holds our society together sometimes. And, and so judges need to be – you know, they need to be on their game. They need to be um, thoughtful, reflective, as fair as they can be. And um, I really think um, mindfulness is a, is a terrific tool. It's it's not the only tool, but I think it's a terrific tool, and it's it's well suited to what we do. So you asked earlier what the reaction has been. Very interesting. I was nervous when I put the article out, and uh, what I found was a lot of people related to it. I got a lot of uh, unsolicited feedback from people, and not just people on the coast. I mean, I got I got emails from people in Alabama and Indiana and places like that. I mean, there was just sort of this sense of of uh, a lot of people around the country either having a practice or being interested in it and feeling that something like that was something that would enhance their lives. Um, so uh, I just this summer uh, spoke at two, um, they're called circuit conferences. They're, they're uh, gatherings of the judges and, and uh, lawyer representatives from the different regions of the country. So um, we, we spoke at the Ninth Circuit and the Tenth Circuit yeah, I both, think I was supposed to go yeah, to one of them, yeah. and I I was too busy to yeah, go. Yeah, both both of them are in the West. The Ninth yeah. Circuit is is the West Coast, and 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 some of the inland um, states, and then the the Tenth Circuit is is the rest of the inland mountain states, and then in Kansas and Oklahoma. And 
uh, so we gave presentations. And then at the uh, at the Tenth Circuit, we actually had a uh, voluntary practice session the morning following the presentation. And I had no idea what was going to happen. You know, I thought, you know, we might get three people. Uh, we got over 30 judges. Wow. Yeah, uh, from from around the Tenth Circuit. And and um, everyone was really interested. You know, they, they, they said, yeah, I can see where this would be useful to me or relevant to me. Um, and um, so we actually did a little practice, and we had some, some uh, discussion afterwards. Um, and then uh, this summer, another program that I was involved in was in, uh, in uh, Oregon. It was a national workshop we did for um, court uh, unit executives. So it's like essentially the clerks of court, people who run the, the clerk's offices in all of the federal courts and, and the chiefs of the probation and pretrial offices around the country. And they work with the, the criminal defendants. And um, we had about 250 of those folks and did a, did a mindfulness program for them and then had a practice session the next morning and had, had a really good turnout as well. And I think people, people just, I mean, they find it relatable. I mean, they, they say, yeah, you know, I, I can see where one of the things I struggle with is, you know, being, you know, just having moods, you know, having, you know, being, you know, being distracted by, by by emotion or being distracted by by worries and you know think is you know as people say I mean you're either in the, the past or you're in the future your mind is, is is somewhere other than in the present and and that having a greater ability to be in the present uh, really does enable you to do your job better it isn't it isn't I think the initial interest people had as it was it was as a health thing. It was it was a way of reducing stress, which which it's great as a health thing. I mean, it was how I got into it. But but it 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 has professional applications, and I think that's what's that's what's interesting. I mean, I think that's what's starting to be seen in a lot of different um, um, areas of life. I mean, you you mentioned. We talked about them earlier. I mean, medicine's another one. I mean, yeah, and know. the legal community. Yeah. Law schools are teaching yeah. this now. Exactly. Uh, there are lawyer uh, websites to That's right. uh, mindful lawyer. That's right. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm getting that right. And in fact, yeah. I think I saw a website about uh, um, dedicated to judges who are trying to spread mindfulness within the judiciary. I, I, yeah, there's a. I think what you're. It's pr- it's probably uh, one of the ones uh, for the state judiciaries. I see. Um, but yes, I'm aware that there are people doing that. Um, uh, and uh, would like to actually link up with them. The the uh, National Judicial College, which is um, is in, in some ways an organization that's similar to the one that I'm involved with, but it's it's a um, an educational resource for judges of state courts. And it's in addition, not all the states have really robust judicial education just for budget reasons. And and so this is a national um, organization. It's a nonprofit that does. Uh, judicial education. They're having a mindfulness retreat in, um, I think, in November, uh, four days. You know that they're they're getting people to uh, out in uh, Arizona. It's so, unbelievable. Yeah. Great. So you know, it's it's pretty it's pretty interesting to see how um, it's becoming more mainstream. People are less embarrassed about it, I guess. Um, and um, I mean, there's nothing to be embarrassed about. I mean, it's, it's one of the things I always tell people is it's 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 a totally natural process, and it's. Um, I mean, some people are interested in whether it's um, got any religious overtones or not, and, and I said, "Well, n- mindfulness per se doesn't, you know, but but you can look in almost any uh, faith tradition and you can find it, you know, that it's part of it's part of the practice in, in many of the great religions." Yes, so, but you know, there yeah. have been some lawsuits filed against school, public schools. Yes, um, yes, filed or threatened. Uh, the argument being that there are sectarian overtones. What do you have a view on that? I mean, it's going to bubble up to the courts. Well, I think so, and I think you have to be very clear that that's not what we're talking about. Um, I, I've seen those cases. In fact, a couple of them were in federal court. Um, they, they thought, uh, I think the, there was a yoga class, you know, for in a school, and they the, the you know salutation at the end of a yoga class, Namaste, was a was a religious um, statement, and you could make an argument, you know, because it comes from from. Hindu tradition, but I think you know. I think we're being we're being very careful. I think it's it's funny how this comes up for me. It's not because to me it's it's completely secular and always has been. But I I, I have colleagues, judges will approach me who who they themselves are 
uh, you know, they have a religious affiliation. They say, well, how is this different from prayer? How is this different from the contemplation that I do as part of my religion? And then we'll talk about it and say, well, no, actually, it's, it's quite similar. It has, it has many of the same elements. And so how you, how you choose to do this is, is you know, it's, you, you really find your own comfort level. It's not like, like there's only one way to do it. But but the thing that that I think all mindfulness practices have in common is the is is the is the being in the moment. It's it's, fine. it's having a practice that gets you in the moment. But do you, do you yeah. think there's a legally acceptable, constitutionally kosher way to get mindfulness into public schools? I I think so. I mean, I, you know, I don't know how a court would view it because it would depend on the particulars of what of the program of the program. Yeah, you know, but you, you could do if the programs were correct. You think yes, it's possible. I, absolutely. Because I think if you do it correctly, it's got nothing to do with religion. I think the problem is that this is one of those areas where people have very strong opinions and very strong emotions. You know, so someone could misread. Uh, you know, I've been doing yoga for as long as I've been doing meditation, and, and it has absolutely no religious significance to me at all. It never has, you know. But it, but it's. I suppose if somebody wanted to see um, that in that way, I mean, they could they could make that argument. So I don't mean to minimize the possibility that somebody might see it that way. But I think if you, I think if you teach mindfulness to a diverse audience in the right way, that that there is no reason why it couldn't be part of a of a curriculum in a public school. So give me a sense of what your – I know you say that sometimes you practice every day, sometimes you don't. But when you do practice, what do you do? What is – what's the – what kind of meditation? How um, long? What's okay. the Okay, well, it, it's, it's variable. I mean, my, my, my optimal is, is 20 minutes. Uh, I just use bells. Um, don't use any kind of guidance. Um, like actual bells that you're ringing personally or I actually phone? I actually have a recording. Okay. I have a recording of bells. And they're, you know, they're kind of the, the – very nice resonant bells that you know have long lingering yes. sounds. And, so it gets you do a bell yeah. to start and a bell to end. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and other than that, it's just breathing. So you mean yeah. you're watching, you're feeling your breath coming in, yeah, going out, and then when you get distracted, you go back. That's correct. And that's it. That's it. Um, and it's, so th- that is the classic MBSR technique. And just to say a word about that, because yeah. I. Um, you mentioned this was How pioneered it by yeah. uh, and it was pioneered by John Kabat-Zinn, who was right. A, uh, I, I always forget if he was a micro or molecular biologist from MIT. Somebody corrected mm-hmm. me on this on Twitter recently, um, and I obviously didn't take it in uh-huh. or wasn't being mindful when I read it. But anyway, John, uh, phenomenal guy, started uh, basically t- – he was a Zen practitioner, but right. was also studying in the Theravadan tradition too at the Insight Meditation Society up in um, up in Barrie, Massachusetts, and had a moment of insight while while practicing on retreat that, hey, we could teach this. Strip out all the Buddhist yeah. uh, lingo and just teach it, you know, because, yeah, the Buddhists describe mindfulness well, but they, they don't own it just the mm-hmm. same way that algebra was de- described very well by the Muslims and what Baghdad or whatever back in the day. But, you know, it is a, fun, a universal phenomenon. That's that's exactly right. And and I, as I mentioned earlier, I, I studied Zen not as a practitioner but as a as a student of religion many years ago. Uh, I actually did take a, a Zen meditation class. Uh, it was, a, it was I think it was eight or ten weeks. It's very similar. I didn't really notice much difference between that and and what I'd been doing. It was it was interesting to to, to see that um, that that is you know I mean I see some subtle differences, but it wasn't it wasn't anything real real significant. It depends on yeah. the form of Zen meditation. Yeah. If they're having yeah. to do koans, it might feel right. a little different. But uh, shikantaza, I think that's probably what they taught you, which yeah. is just kind of a breathing. Breath. Yeah. Yep. I'm not a Zen expert by, by a long yeah. stretch. Yeah. But So let me ask you one last, one last question, and, and yeah. then beyond this, we can just um, either let you go, or if you, mm. if you feel yeah. I've missed something, we can talk right. about that. But um, it, how well does mindfulness is all about non-judgmental awareness, you mm. know, seeing mm-hmm. what arises in your mind without getting caught up in it dispassionately non-judgmentally right. right this is the skill right. that we can develop it's a, it's in it's our birthright but it's a skill that we can we Correct. Can, we can uh, hone right. um how does that jibe with your job which yeah. is to judge to judge well it's a great question you're not the first person who's asked it um i think i guess where where i would make the distinction is that the the judging 
of my own thoughts, my own feelings, my own reactions gets in the way of my being able to see the, the situation as it is. You know, the, what, I'm, what I'm kind of looking for is as clear a view of what I'm being asked to, to think about as I can possibly get. And I want to get, kind of get the clutter of, of my own stuff out of the way. Once I've done that, I still have a job of trying to analyze what it is I'm seeing and say, so, well, does this have any legal significance? You know, or am I, if I'm evaluating who's telling the truth, you know, or I'm, I'm um, trying to decide whether a, a, a situation that I'm being presented with falls under a particular set of case law or something that I have to follow. So, so I, I still have to go through an analytical process. Um, and if it's a situation where I'm being asked to exercise some discretion, like I'm trying to decide, uh, should I give somebody probation or send them to jail, you know, or should I, how long should I send them to jail for, you know, or that kind of thing. Um, I still have to do that, but, but I'm doing, I'm bringing less of my own baggage when I do it, you know, that it, which is not to say, I mean, I'm still me and I still have all of the strengths and weaknesses that I have as a, as a human being, but but there's less extraneous clutter. That's the way I would put it. You know, it's like I can I can look at it as wow, this case is really hard. You know, but but let me let's see. Let me try to think about this. Let me try to unpack it. And 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 it's I'm just much better able to do that if I'm not dealing with my own my own inner voices you know yeah i mean i have yeah. that was beautifully articulated yeah. and i think it really speaks to one of the fears that people have about meditation which is that they're going to be rendered into some lifeless non-judgmental blob they'll be ineffective they won't have any edge but the point is not so that you, is not to make you unable uh incapable of making decisions the point is that you can make decisions you can have enough non-judgmental awareness of your emotional churn so that you can let it go when you come to make a decision. Precisely. And, and, and you know, I, I caricatured it in that way before I'd ever done it. I mean, I remember thinking about it when I was a college student because, you know, I was studying this stuff. And, and I said, you know, you can meditate and, you know, you can be all, you know, blissed out and everything. But, I mean, you know, what, what happens when, you know, there's an injustice going on in the world? You know, you, or what happens when there's a situation that requires you to deal with it? I mean, you need to be. You need to. You need to engage. You need to do something, and and I think that was a caricature. That was a mistake on my part in how I thought about it. That that it it, it isn't about. I mean, some people want to go. You know, sit on a mountaintop and, and bliss out for weeks at a time. But I, I mean, would love to do that. Yeah, yeah, you know. I mean, I'd like to do that too. But I'd like to do that by choice. <laughs> yeah. You know, right. rather rather than that sort of being being everything that that I think you know and you know you like I have. Two children. I mean, being 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 a dad, you know, being a spouse, being being a judge, being grandfather, grandfather, you know, all of that. The more presence I have, I mean, the the more I can give of myself for those things, and and you know, still still have plenty of emotions. But it's 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 it's. I think the idea that you can decide that you have some consciousness about it, and. You, you, you can think about how you want to express the feelings that you're having instead of it just being, you know, whatever imprint you have from your childhood or, you know, th- traumas that you had in your life. I mean, I think, I think, it's, I think that's an important difference. It's, a, it's an important kind of space you get from, from, from this. And, and so I think, I think the idea that you're d- disconnected and detached is, is, is a caricature. I don't think it's true. Agree. Yeah. Your Honor, you've done a great job. Is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't ask? Anything you want to talk about that you feel I didn't give you the opportunity to Let talk about? Let me think about that for a second. Um, I, I guess the only thing I want to add, and it's just something I'm careful about because it is my job. I have a national constituency. I mean, varieties of people who have many, many different viewpoints and many, many different... Uh, jobs that they do, and, and uh, there's a wide, wide variety of uh, people that that I serve. I always talk about these things as being a tool in the toolkit. You know that it's not that everybody has to do A, B, or C. That people 
come to different things at different points in their lives. I mean, sometimes people come to completely different things than other people. But but I, I feel as an educator that it's, it's very useful to put this tool out there, that it's something that can help uh, people in the judiciary be better at what they do. If people choose not to do it, if people choose to do something else, if people choose to do nothing, and that's 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 their decision. That's something that I, I respect. And I think that's I just wouldn't want anyone to have the impression that somehow there's a there's a you know intent here to spread gospel to people right. because I, I, I just don't I don't think that's appropriate, and it's, I also don't think that's what we're doing. You know? Well, you're so, on a podcast called yeah. "10% Happier," yeah, so we don't yeah, we don't yeah, believe yeah. in uh, silver bullets here. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, uh, yeah. And you know, I mean, I think you stated well that yeah. this is a practice that is simple, secular, largely scientifically validated. It's not going to solve all of your problems, right. but it's right there and available to you, and you could. It, it's worth considering. Is I think I took that to be your message, having read your article. Absolutely. No, I think you 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 took the message correctly. That was. That was exactly what the message was. Judge Vogel, thank you very much. Thank really, you. really appreciate it. Well, it was thanks, a pleasure to meet you. Thanks for having me. I really, really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. Good luck getting this out there to some of the most thank important you. people in our society. Thank you. Okay, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please make sure to uh, subscribe, rate us. And uh, if you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests uh, we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter at Dan B. Harris. I also want to thank heartily the people who produce this podcast and really do pretty much all the work. Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, Andrew Kalb, Steve Jones, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. Uh, I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.